can be the worst moments of our lives. And actually, the church here in Thyatira is at risk of betraying Jesus. It's a really serious situation they're in, uh, which is why Jesus spends so long writing to this church. If you look at the length of the letters, it's the longest of the seven. It's the central letter. There's something significant happening here. Despite the fact that Thyatira was one of the smaller cities in the area, Jesus is really clear with what's going on. He's got some serious words that we also need to listen to and take to heart and pay attention to. That's what we're going to do today. Uh, Thyatira was quite close to Pergamum. If you were here last week, that was the city we were looking at. They were kind of the closest ones. They had similar problems, similar cultures, similar situations. Thyatira was a trade city. Uh, In the book of Acts, there's a a woman, Lydia, who becomes a Christian from uh, Thyatira. That's where she uh, made her money. Uh, And like I said, it also had similar struggles to to Pergamon that we thought about last week. But it seems like things are maybe even more serious uh, for the church here in uh, Thyatira. But before we get to the the bad news, we learn something really good about who Jesus is. And we see something really encouraging about the church. So we're going to dive in. We're going to think about each of those things in turn. And the first thing we see is this. We see the words of the Son of God. That's what we see in verse 18, isn't it? These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus is the Son of God. It's the only, ch- the only time this title is used in the whole book of Revelation. Uh, so why does Jesus choose to use it in this moment? Apparently, uh, Thyatira was uh, known for its worship of uh, Apollo, who was the son of Zeus. Uh, so a prominent idol in, the, in that city was a son of God. Uh, they would have worshipped the emperor who they treated as a son of the gods. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, look, here I am. These are the words of the true son of God. Uh, pay no attention to these other ones. I am the son of God. Pay attention to what I have to say to you. These, this is the truth. So what do we learn about the son of God here? We get this amazing description, don't we? Eyes like blazing fire. Feet like burnished bronze. I can't quite imagine what it would be look like to see flaming eyes. But it's a picture of being able to see everything. Penetrating right through, right through to our hearts. Right through to the core. Being able to see every detail. Nothing being hidden from his gaze. He knows everything. His feet are like burnished bronze. I didn't know what burnished was. Apparently it just means shiny, like polished, really shiny uh, bronze. Which is a picture of purity, a picture of holiness, and a picture of strength. That the bronze, a strong metal, nothing can stand against him. And so you see, Jesus starts there to say, here I am, the son of God. I can see everything. I can see what's going on there. I can get to the right at the heart of your situation. And I've got the strength and the authority to do something about that. I am coming in judgment. I, I, I have the strength and power to respond against evil. It's helpful, isn't it? We, we often speak of Jesus as our friend, as the one who loves us. And those things are wonderful and true and good and right. Jesus is closer than a brother if we're trusting him. But we have to hold that with also with the reality that he is the righteous judge of the universe. He knows everything. He knows our hearts. He knows the the, the bits we hide from everyone else. And he is perfect and holy. And he knows where we go wrong. 
And yet he cares. He cares about our purity. He, he's writing to this church because he cares for them. He cares enough to, to act to save people from sin. Both that church and ourselves today. It's good, isn't it, to have that, both those pictures in mind as we worship him. So what has Jesus seen with these fiery eyes? Look at verse 19. We see they are growing in faith. They're growing in faith and love. I know your deeds, verse 19, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. He has seen really good things. It's encouraging, isn't it? He's seen their deeds and their service. He's he's seen that their faith is making a genuine difference to how they live their lives. They're putting other people first. They're following Christ's example of mercy, of compassion. They're motivated by his love for them. They know that love and they want to show it to other people as well. They're persevering. They're they're, they're holding on uh, in the midst of of hardship and difficulty. They're standing up for Christ, uh, even though they might face opposition or persecution. It's good. It's encouraging, isn't it? This is what Jesus looks at this church and he sees good things. Uh, He sees all that's going on, especially the fact they've been growing. Do you see that right at the end of the verse? It says you're doing more than you did at first. They're making progress. They're they're moving on in their faith. They're doing more than they did when they first became Christians. They're growing in their good works and their faith and their love as they trust in him. I think it's encouraging for us to see how Jesus encourages this church. He sees his people and he loves them and he wants to to spur them on to, to live godly lives, to love other people, to keep growing, to keep changing. And do you know what? He does the same today. With us as a church, he, he sees what's, what's good. Uh, maybe that's encouragement to us, to, to, to know that he is for his people. He wants to encourage us and equip us and strengthen us. But maybe it's also a challenge. That, that last line really struck me, doesn't it? Doing more than we did at first. Can we say that as believers today? That we are doing more than we did at first? Do we have that same passion, that same zeal as when we first became Christians? And we're growing and we're doing even more. It's easy, isn't it, to become a bit complacent? We saw the, uh, the cruise liner uh, earlier in what Wayne was saying, just to treat the Christian life like a bit of a cruise, just cruise along. Jesus said, no, you're doing more than you did at first. Are we invested like that to live out our faith? Jesus encourages the church, keep going, keep trusting him, keep uh, looking to, 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 to him where, where the strength comes from, through the Holy Spirit, keep relying on him. And we need to do the same, to, to, to trust that he is for us, to keep, keep living for him. Remembering that, do you know what, our, our efforts, they're not, always, they're not always perfect. Very rarely, if ever, <laughs> could we class them as perfect. No, but, and yet when we, our weak efforts, he sees and he encourages us and he perfects them, uh, thanks to his grace. So we see lots of good, there's good in this church. But then we get another nevertheless never a good word, is it, when you get nevertheless. It's like a big, uh, big problem that we see next, a serious problem. They are tolerating a false teacher that is leading them into sin. That's what we see. Verse 20, don't we? We see it there. I have this against you, Jesus says. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. 
we've got this serious issue raised by Jesus here. That woman Jezebel. That seems to be referring to a false prophet in the, in the, uh, the church there, a female false prophet. I mean, I like the way Jesus says, she calls herself a prophet, but she's not. She's, she's a deceiver. Jezebel is not a good name. Would very much not be on a, a baby list, a baby name list in that culture. You would never call a girl Jezebel. <clears throat> and you see why in 1 Kings chapter 16, if you go there, you'll, you'll meet Jezebel, who's the wife of King Ahab. And she is an evil person. She, she worships idols and she leads God's people astray, along with her husband, who wasn't a, a good king either. They lead the people away from God to worship idols, to do other evil practices. It's quite similar to what we saw last week. Remember the teaching of, of Balaam, also there in the Old Testament, and who, who encouraged uh, basically God's people to be enticed away from God's. But Balaam was motivated by money. He was all about greed. When you look at Je- the account of Jezebel, it just seems to be kind of hatred for God's people, just a, a real hatred for God. That's why this name is so horrible, so strong. It's very much not used by Jesus lightly. He's making it very clear. Now, this false teacher is dangerous. Her motives, her attitude towards God's people is not good. So what was she teaching? Well, it's very similar to last week. Christians in that culture would have been facing a lot of pressures to to conform to the society around them. Similar to Pergamum, to kind of be a part of your trade guild, to go along with the pagan feasting and the, the food offered to idols and maybe leading to drunkenness and sex outside of marriage and just taking part in all those things in order to kind of keep your work and keep your livelihoods. It's not unlike pressure that we might face in different situations today. You think of uh, initiations at sports teams, particularly university. Uh, I think rugby teams have a sort of na- a name for themselves, don't they? Being really sort of harsh in initiations. Uh, and there's that pressure, isn't there, to kind of go along with it and, and so you can be part of things. But we face peer pressure in all sorts of ways. Maybe it's at work and a peer pressure to, to get drunk with, with the people there. There's all sorts of peer pressure in our lives that we can kind of feel that that those kind of being pulled towards. But of course here it's really serious because their pressure was, it was their livelihood, how they could provide for their families. So this false teacher comes in and says, oh, it's okay to take part. Of course you can go along. It doesn't affect anything. It doesn't, doesn't matter. You go along. You go and eat in those feasts. You go and participate in the sexuality. You do what you like. God doesn't mind that. It would, be a, it would be tempting to listen, wouldn't it? But it is very clearly not what the Bible teaches. I think I mentioned this verse in passing last week. Acts chapter 15, 29. That this is part of a letter that the, the apostles write uh, to uh, Gentile churches uh, as they spread. Here's one of the final instructions. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. You'll do well to avoid these things. It's really clear, isn't it? It's very, very clear as that's sent out to the churches. Do not be involved in those things. Have nothing to do with them. It's very clear that this this so-called prophet is in the wrong. And in fact, I think we can see Satan as the deceiver at work in what she's doing. Verse 24 is a strange one, isn't it? It talks about how 
the people who haven't held on to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. It's a weird phrase, one that we don't, it's not, I don't think it's anywhere else in scripture. But it was probably used by the false teacher herself as if she's sort of saying, like, I know Satan's deep secrets. Listen to me. Listen to what I've got to say to you. Uh, some commentators seem to, to think it was all to do with the separation of body and soul. So you can imagine it, can't you, saying, actually, whatever you do with your body doesn't affect your soul, doesn't affect what's going on inside. So you can do whatever you like with your body. You can go and worship in the temples and eat, eat those meats and, uh, and sleep with whoever's there. It doesn't affect your soul. It doesn't affect you know, your, your salvation. That's a separate thing. Is that kind of the, the Satan's so-called deep secret that she was trying to spread? It's possible. But it's not true. It's very wrong. God, God made us embodied people. Our body, we're body and soul together. What we do with one, it affects the other. It's dangerous to think otherwise. And Satan is a deceiver. He always has been. He's trying to deceive the church through this false teacher. So what we, what we see next is, is quite strong, isn't it? We see that Jesus will respond. He will respond. The, the church was under threat. The church was in danger. And he warns them. In fact, it seems like this false teacher's been given a chance to repent. Do you see that? Verse 21. But she was unwilling. Maybe that was the church itself. Maybe that was some visiting Christians trying to correct her, trying to stop her teaching these things. And she has ignored it, and she's refused to turn away from it. But the church hasn't acted to, to, to remove her from amongst themselves. They're known for their love as a church. Maybe they're thinking it wouldn't be loving to kind of get rid of her, would it? But at the same time, we know it's not really loving to tolerate that kind of falsehood. And Jesus' words make strong reading, don't they? Verse 22. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Very strong, this idea of suffering. Uh, the bed of suffering is like a sick bed. Maybe she will become ill. Those who commit adultery with her, whether that's a literal thing or whether that's a kind of a spiritual sense because they're betraying Christ, they're cheating on Christ by going along with her teaching. They will suffer unless they realize it, unless they repent. He will strike her children dead. Again, that could be literal children, but it's probably more likely talking about her closest followers, that the ones that are so most closely following her teachings. They're in real danger. Jesus comes to judge. And do you see what he says about what the churches will know? Churches, not just Thyatira, but all the churches, that Jesus is the it's the one who searches hearts and minds. He's got those flaming eyes. And he comes and he searches and he judges us according to our deeds. That's why we need him. That's why we need his love. It's our only hope. But it's weighty stuff, isn't it? It's a serious accusation. We, we get this sense of real hatred that Jesus has for, for sin. He cannot stand it being excused. He cannot stand it being tolerated in his church. And he wants his people to have just nothing to do with it. Nothing at all. And friends, if we follow the same saviour, we need to take sin just as seriously as Jesus does. Sin is like adultery towards God. That's language we see in verse 22. 
But it's language used throughout scripture. It comes up again and again, this idea of God's people have been unfaithful to him. Uh, it's like an unfaithfulness in a marriage. It's a horrible thought, isn't it? That, that, that's what we do to God. We cheat on God. We look elsewhere for what only God can provide us. We betray him. It's really serious. We need to realize that. We need to, to turn away from those things. So how do we do that? How do we tolerate, how do we not tolerate such things today? We're gonna, I've got a couple of just suggestions for us to think about, maybe as a church and as individuals. It's kind of building on what we thought about last week. If you weren't here last week, the, you can listen to the podcast or look on the website to, to see the application there. It kind of all follows on. It's all very similar. But here's one for us as a church. We should lovingly exercise church discipline when it's needed. We should lovingly exercise church discipline when it's needed. You see, she was given a chance to repent. Well, what does that look like today? What does that mean? Well, well, Jesus kind of sets out a kind of process of what we call church discipline. It's something Jesus gives to his church for everyone's good. You can look at it in Matthew 18, 15 through to 17. And basically how it works is if you, if you see unrepentant sin in someone's life and they're, they're unaware of it or they're, they're not willing to change, then you might speak to them one-to-one and you might go along, get alongside them and say, look, you're doing this and that's not right. Here, look in scripture, look at what the Bible says, look at what Jesus wants us to do instead. It's important to, to repent, to turn away from these things. And you have a conversation, you, you, you try and uh, help them see that. And if they don't listen, you bring in a couple of others. You bring in some more witnesses to, 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 to try and explain. And if they still refuse to listen, still refuse to, to stop living in that way, it's brought to the whole church family. And if, again, they refuse to listen, they might well be removed from the fellowship of the church, from the family, because they've ignored those warnings. It's not something we ever want to do. Praise God, it's not something we've had to do as yet as a church. But it's something that might be necessary for the good of the church and also for the good of the person that needs to hear that. It's not, it's not loving to just let people carry on wandering away from God. It's part of our loving action is to try and draw them back in. So something similar happened in Thyatira there. But for whatever reason, she wasn't disciplined as she should be. Now, I know the whole title sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? This idea of church discipline, being told off, and we don't really like that as a concept, do we? But I discipline my children because I want them to, to grow and, and, and uh, become you know, good, good members of society. Think about the world of sport. The people, professionals, they have teams of people around them to keep them disciplined, to kind of keep them focused on the price. And that's kind of what's going on here. It's saying, look, you've lost sight of Jesus. You need to turn away. You need to come back to him. It's a good thing. It's a loving thing to help someone see that they're not living the way God wants. Now, maybe you're worried. Maybe you're thinking, hang on a minute. I'm meeting an elder in a couple of weeks. What are they going to say to me? Don't worry. <laughs> Don't worry. Um, it's, I think what would be very clear that it's... it's unrepentant sin it's very different isn't it to the kind of daily battles with sin that we all face we all sin we all need help with sin in our lives we struggle and we're perhaps aware of that and our tender conscience has kind of teach us those things and 
And we know we need to change. We know we need help. But it's a good sign if you're conscious of those things. Really, it's someone who hasn't realized they're sinning at all and doesn't want to know. That's when it becomes a problem. Now, as a church, we, we struggle together. We battle sin together. We, we should never pretend that we're all doing perfectly. That's the temptation, isn't it? After church, when we're having our meal, we're all fine, we're all great, everyone's happy and everyone's doing really well. That's not the reality of our lives. Every single one of us is struggling in some way or another with sin, multiple ways. And you know, as a church, we've got to be okay with that. And this is a safe place to struggle. This is a safe place to go, yeah, I haven't got it all right. And I need Jesus, and we need Jesus together. That's, that's why we might need to do that from time to time. But we remember we do that as a community of love. So what about as individuals? How does that kind of play into that, knowing that we all struggle? Last week, if you're here, we were thinking about how sometimes we can be influenced by the world around us, by the culture around us, and we don't even realize that we're kind of not putting Christ first. And again, it's a similar kind of idea here, a similar way of maybe not realizing the, the offense to your cause in Christ. So I think maybe it's something, I, I want to consider one example in particular, just to kind of go a bit deeper. But there's a helpful question I came across as I was preparing. Here it is. What sin do you tolerate today that you didn't tolerate five years ago? What sin do you tolerate today that you didn't tolerate five years ago? This is a really helpful diagnostic question for our hearts. Because it reveals areas where we might just be slowly slipping and walking away from Jesus without sometimes even realizing it. Now, one big example in our society today is sexual immorality. And it's mentioned again and again in these, in these letters to the churches. I thought that's a good example to think about in particular for us today. Now, we're probably unlikely, as far as I'm aware, to be involved in kind of sexual temple worship. Put your hand up if that's, yeah, no. That's not it today, is it? But sexual immorality pervades our culture. It's everywhere. And it's really easy to be led astray. Maybe it begins with just our eyes kind of lingering unhelpfully. And uh, I don't know, there's some attractive TV star on the screen and you just, you just, you just, your eyes just stop and don't move away and you just kind of, something about that. Or maybe on the street, someone's dressed revealingly and, and your eyes kind of follow them down the path and you don't realize, you don't battle it and you don't think, oh, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. Or maybe you have a stressful day, stressful week and you're sitting there sort of browsing the TV late at night and as you flick through the channels, you come across some sex or some nudity or something like that. And you don't carry on. You, suddenly you're hooked. You, you want to see more. Or even if there's nothing on screen and there's these fantasies in your mind that you just, you're just playing through and just, just letting carry on and, and increase and getting carried away. And if you're not careful, that hunger increases. You do it more and more. You, you end up ex- accessing more explicit pornography, frequent masturbation. And yet, everything we kind of watch, everything we hear about on TV, it's a joke about, isn't it? Everyone says, it's fine, everyone does it, it's no big deal, no one's getting hurt. Is it really that bad? And we think, surely, it's not, it's not that bad if no one else is worried about it. Maybe our relationships at home start getting strained, and someone at work just gives you that attention that you didn't realize you, you, you 
thought you needed and you feel special. And all of a sudden you're doubting that kind of commitment that you made in marriage. And you think, surely God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? And you start questioning those things. And before you know it, you're involved with someone else emotionally, physically. No one thinks, oh, that, no one ever thinks that would happen to me. But it does. It happens all too often. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be conscious that it can move in that direction. Probably the most prominent one that most will be struggling with is, is pornography. Because it's just so prevalent, so accessible. So if that's you, and it's not just young men, it can be old, old young men, women, all of us can, can, can struggle in different ways with that. If, it is, if that is you today, then let me just encourage you to not struggle alone, to bring that into the light, to, to find someone you trust and say, I need help, I need Jesus' grace and help to change. It's very difficult to, to do that on your own, but actually with the help of brothers and sisters, Jesus can do amazing things in our hearts. There's one example, isn't it? What do you tolerate today that you didn't tolerate five years ago? Maybe it's that, just that occasional lingering look that you would never have done before, but for whatever reason, it's just starting to creep in. Maybe it's that TV surfing. Maybe it's reading unhelpful romance novels that just feed the fantasies. All these things are pathways that lead away from Jesus. Jesus, in another very clear, strong verse, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Of course, the flip side, uh, if you've looked at a man lustfully, the same principle. But you look at that and you go, oh, okay. That's true probably for most of us, isn't it? If not all of us, I know it's true for me. But I have done that. I have looked lustfully. And we need the Spirit to convict us of that and help us see that that's not right. And we need God's help, don't we? We need to pray that he would help us feel that seriousness of our sin, that we wouldn't tolerate it, that we would fight it in his strength. But maybe you're sitting here thinking, I don't know what any of that's about. That's just not my struggle, not my battle. Well, praise God, first of all, but don't be complacent because there must be something else. Uh, Maybe there's a struggle with greed or gluttony or, or drinking too much or jealousy or gossip, anger. There's all sorts of ways, aren't there, that we struggle, that we sin. And actually, it's those more kind of respectable ones, the more ones that we kind of become more easy to tolerate, that we might be more easy to slip into. And we actually, we end up gossiping in ways we would never have gossiped five years ago. Or telling lies at work we would never have told five years ago, but just because of the way things are going. These things can grow, don't they? We need to examine our hearts for those sort of areas. Ephesians 5.3 says, have not even a hint of these things in our lives. Not even a hint, not even the tiniest bit. And if we're ever going to reach that, we need God's help. Whenever we spot it, we need to repent quickly, don't we? Turn away from it to listen to this warning and, and come back and find his forgiveness and his grace. Because this is, this, is, uh, this is why we're here as a church, friends. Because of the good news of the gospel. Because actually there is an opportunity for restoration. For those who have betrayed him. For those who have turned away. That is the heart of the gospel for all, each one of us. Remember what I said, we have been unfaithful to God. We have not been faithful to him. We have sinned in all sorts of ways we've rejected him and instead of casting us out he has 
made a way for us to, to, to restore that relationship. And he laid down his life on the cross to make us clean, to get rid of the stains on our hands, to save unfaithful, sinful people like us. Isn't that astonishing? Isn't that amazing, friends, that we sit here? If we're trusting Jesus, we're sitting here uncondemned, forgiven, cleansed, thanks to all that he has done on the cross for us. He is faithful to us when we have been anything but faithful to him. Um, Oh, we need to be so captivated by that love and that mercy, don't we? So that we are quick to turn away and quick to repent and and quicker to, to progress and do more than we did at first. And quick to strive for godliness and press on in our faith. Only in his strength. We never can do it on our own. But knowing that love, knowing that he has saved us. That's the, that's the position we change from. It's done. It's finished. He, he has paid it all. That's good news. If, if you're sitting here today and you're not a believer, if, you're not, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus, and maybe you're convicted of that sin, or convicted of ways you've ter- you're realizing that, 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 that something's wrong in your life, then this is a place of safety and rescue and salvation. If you trust, you come and Put your trust in Jesus. Love to speak to you afterwards if you want to do more. Well, just a quick point to finish. Because at the end of the uh, letter, we see a call to faithfulness. A call to faithfulness. It's quite interesting, isn't it, in verse 25. So to the rest of the church, you aren't struggling with this. Just kind of hold on to what you've got until I come. Just keep going. It sounds really simple at first glance, doesn't it? Just keep, keep going. But actually remember in verse 19 what that, what that looked like. Their deeds, their love, their perseverance, their, their progression, their growth. Jesus is saying, keep doing those things. Don't give in to the demands of the world around you. Keep going. It's possible with the help of the Spirit. That's why I chose that picture. Someone looking ahead. The journey's not finished. There's, there's going to be some lows. There's going to be some highs. But it's kind of pressing on. Keep going in Jesus. And for those who do, for those who persevere, those who overcome, do you see these great promises at the end of the letter? It's always, every letter seems to finish with this promise for the future for God's people. This one's quite striking. Verse 26 and 27 talks about authority over the nations. Uh, Wayne read Psalm 2 earlier. We saw this, uh, this principle. This is what Jesus is quoting. The, The psalm talks about God's son inheriting the nations and judging them dashing them to pieces like pottery. It's very graphic. There's no escape from judgment for those who reject him. But actually, for those who do trust Jesus, the Son of God, that's good news for believers, that we, 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 we can trust him. And if we overcome, if we, if we live for him, there's this strange sense that in some sense we share in that authority as we're united with him. Isn't that an amazing prospect, an amazing privilege to share in that authority. We look forward to that. That's why it's worth persevering. That's why it's worth holding on. And we're also given the morning star. Isn't that good? You think, I don't know really. Is it good? <laughs> it's another strange one, isn't it? Like last week we saw the manna and the stones. This week we're given a morning star. What's going on? Well, maybe the eagle-eyed among you, if you were here at the start of the service and we read from Revelation 22, see what it says. I, Jesus have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David 
and the bright morning star. Aha, we think. Jesus is the morning star. He's the one who gives himself to his people, to those who overcome. If you keep on going, if you persevere, if you keep trusting the gospel, you will be with Jesus forever. And that is glorious good news. So it's a call to, to listen, isn't it? A call to remain faithful to him and look forward to those rewards. It's a good letter. It's a challenging letter. There's great encouragement. There's great warning. But hopefully it's one we can take heart in because it does reveal Jesus' love for his church, doesn't it? That he cares passionately for their, their holiness. He wants us to grow. He wants us to be strong and to flee from sin. And he's made it possible for us to do that with the help of his spirits. So let me encourage you, friends, keep going, keep trusting, keep holding on, keep longing for that day where you will be with him forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this letter from Jesus to his church. Would you help us to to have ears to, to hear what it has to say to us today? Lord, if there are areas of sin in our life that we are, are slipping into or slipping away from you and, and tolerating in ways we would not have before, please convict us and bring us back and help us turn back to you and remember your love and your compassion and that you can help us change. Please keep us, uh, our eyes fixed on you, trusting your love, trusting all that you've done and longing for that day we will be with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.